Amen. I want to welcome those of you who may be visiting family and they've drugged you into our church this morning. Uh, we are glad that you're here today and for any who may be visiting with us for the first time. My name is J.D. Summers. I serve as pastor here along with Stephen Parkin who opened up our service. And we are delighted that you're here because Jesus deserves glory. Uh, we're here this morning because Jesus is alive. We remembered his death and his suffering Friday night. But the story didn't end there. And so it is a joy to gather, to be here. Thank you to those that are sitting downstairs and opening up some more seats for us up here. Uh, we are here to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. You guys know the story. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was unjustly condemned, crucified on a Roman cross. His body laid in a tomb. And on Sunday, the first day of the week, the stone rolled away. And the world has never been the same since. Jesus emerged victorious on that day, and it is important that we remember, as, as Christians, as believers, as followers of Christ, it's absolutely essential that we remember and we believe and we affirm the historic truth of the resurrection. It really happened. Jesus really is alive. It's true. And for us, this truth is necessary for our salvation. If Jesus does not rise, then here's what that means. It means he's not who he said he was. He's not the son of God. If Jesus does not rise, it means that his death did not have the power to save us. And we have no hope of eternal life. Carrie read earlier from the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Later on, Paul says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this whole thing is a joke. It's a waste. It has no power. It has no value. It has no meaning. But Paul continues, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The power for our salvation is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We think about this, we rehearse it, we reflect it every Sunday. That's why we worship on the first day of the week. We remember Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And we often at Easter time think about how the resurrection is for us. Our very salvation depends on Christ's victory over death. But the resurrection is not just for us. The resurrection was also for Jesus it says something about him. The resurrection means something for him. The resurrection is an essential part of his story. This truth that the resurrection is actually for Jesus is seen in one of the most glorious passages in all of the Old Testament. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 53. It is the song of the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 53. I wish we had time to look at every verse in this passage, but we'll be focusing on verses 10 through 12 this morning. This passage actually begins at the end of chapter 52. Chapter 52, verse 13, and it starts with a note of expectation. 
with an anticipation of glory. Before you get to suffering, before you get to humility, there's a note of triumph and victory in verse 13, 14 and 15 of chapter 52. And this passage, this song of the suffering servant, it ends with the eternal reward for the suffering servant. So the resurrection of Uh, is for Jesus in this sense. It confirms that he is worthy of reward for his suffering. I'm going to read the text in its entirety, although we won't have time to look in detail at all of it, and then we'll pray together. Isaiah, starting in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied." By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Father, as we look into this glorious mountaintop passage from the Old Testament this morning, help us to see how it points to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we see him more clearly, trust him more confidently, love him more wholeheartedly. 
And may we give him the glory, the worship, the honor that he so richly deserves. Amen. This Old Testament passage is a, a powerful and poetic description of the suffering servant. This prophecy of one who would represent God's people, who would fulfill the will of the Father. And he would shock everyone with this unexpected humility by suffering and dying, even though he wasn't the one who deserved to suffer and die. Isaiah doesn't name the servant. But in the fullness of time, it became crystal clear that this text is undeniably fulfilled 700 years later by Jesus. If we had time, we could look at all the different places in the New Testament where this passage that I just read for you is quoted, where it's alluded to, where it's paralleled explicitly by the New Testament authors to show us that Jesus is the one who humbled himself as the suffering servant, who became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, that Jesus is the one who was despised and who was rejected by men. Jesus is the one who suffered in our place, who took upon himself the punishment that our sin deserved as he died on the cross. Jesus is the one who submitted himself willingly to unjust treatment, to cruelty. He refused to resist. He refused to even defend himself. This suffering that Jesus endured was efficacious. It worked. It made many to be accounted righteous, to use the words of Isaiah's prophecy. And for Jesus, death is not the end of his story. Augustine, the early church theologian, wrote, Isaiah 53 is not a prophecy. It's a gospel. It's about Jesus. And my aim today is that we, in light of this text, would be able to meditate together, reflect together on how the resurrection displays the glory and the worthiness of Jesus Christ. My point that I want to make today, the central idea of this morning's sermon is this. The resurrection of Jesus confirms that the suffering servant is worthy of his reward. The suffering servant is worthy of his reward. Three ways in which this truth is shown in this text. I want to focus in now on just verses 10, 11, and 12. This whole song can be split up into sort of five stanzas, five sections. And this is the last one, the climax in verses 10 through 12. What we find here is, number one, the resurrected Christ is worthy of honor. He's worthy of honor for his obedience to the Father. He is worthy of honor for his obedience to the Father. Verse 10 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Verses 7 through 9 in this passage tell us that Jesus was mistreated by wicked men. He was unjustly condemned and put to death. But then verse 10 gives us this plot twist that the death of Jesus was at the end of the day the plan of God. And this divine plan turns the tragedy of verses 7 through 9 into irony. That these wicked men who are unjustly condemning and crucifying Jesus Christ are unwittingly fulfilling the perfect plan of God. This means the death of Jesus wasn't an accident. It wasn't just by chance. It wasn't just fate. It wasn't just evidence of a broken system. It wasn't just evidence of corrupt and evil schemes in the heart of man. Jesus died, 
and he died because it was the will of the Father. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. As Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Those men are responsible for their wicked deeds. They are held accountable in the perfectly just courtroom of God. But this death was not outside the plan, the perfectly ordained plan of God the Father. Jesus came to die in obedience to the Father's will. 1 John chapter 4 tells us, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the sacrifice that satisfied the righteous demands of God's wrath. That's what propitiation means. This was God's plan. This is why he sent his son. Not only do we we need to understand that the suffering of Christ was the Father's plan, but also that Jesus was willing. Jesus obeyed. Jesus cooperated. Jesus embraced the Father's will because it was his will also. This willing obedience is all over the passage. Jesus did not resist. Jesus did not protest. In fact, when you read the Gospels, you find that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He went there knowing exactly what, was happening, what would happen. <clears throat> and when Jesus got there, he walked into the temple, right into the hornet's nest, and he confronted the religious leaders. He told them that he was the son of God, and he condemned them for being hypocrites. He was poking the bear. He knew exactly what would happen. Jesus was obedient. Jesus prayed in the garden the night before his death, not my will, but yours be done. His mission was to do the Father's will. And since the time when he was a child, he told his parents, I must be about my father's business. And what was that business? It was to suffer and die in the place of sinners. Verses 4 through 6 shows us that he carried our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It was the will of the Father to crush him. Why? He was crushed for our iniquities. He came to suffer and die in our place. You know, it's wrong for you and me It's actually sinful for us to shift the blame. It's wrong for us to blame other people for our sin, to try to push off the responsibility and the consequences for our wrongdoings onto others. Adam and Eve tried that in the garden. It didn't really work. God didn't accept their blame shifting and their excuses. We still try to do that almost every day, don't we? We want to shift the blame to someone else. We have no right to shift the blame for our sin onto someone else. But here's the amazing thing. God does have that right. He does have the right to take the blame for our sin and place it on his son, Jesus Christ. That's the truth that we see portrayed so beautifully in verses four through six at the very heart of this chapter, that all of our guilt is placed on Christ and all of his righteousness comes to us. You see, God not only shifts the blame for our sin, he also shifts the credit for Christ's perfect obedience to us. 
There's a glorious exchange that takes place at the cross. An exchange that is both arranged by and approved by the God of grace and the suffering servant who does his will. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, For our sake he, referring to God the Father, made him, referring to Christ, to become sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed, verse 5 tells us. And because of that, we are made righteous. Listen, Jesus knew exactly what his death meant. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he embraced it. Some people object to this idea of a substitutionary atonement. They don't like the idea of God the Son taking on the wrath that our sins deserve, this idea of a vicarious suffering. They even blasphemously will call it some sort of cosmic child abuse, that the Father would punish the Son so that we could be forgiven. But that sort of thinking neglects two important points. Number one, that Jesus is one with the Father. So in a sense, God bore the punishment of God. And secondly, that Jesus did this willingly. He was no victim. He knew exactly what he was doing. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Since this suffering was ordained by the Father, and since Jesus willingly submitted himself to it, here's where the resurrection comes in. The Father's pleasure, the Father's approval for the Son's obedience is given to him. You see, the plan moves forward. The plan that the Father had for the Son not only included humiliation, not only included suffering and death, it also included exaltation. The Father's plan was not just about the rejection of the Son, but about His resurrection. Not just about loss, but about reward. And although Jesus was laid in the grave according to verse 9, death is not the end. Look at verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But the chapter doesn't end there. He continues, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. What does this phrase mean? He shall see his offspring. Here's what it means. Jesus looks upon us. The resurrected Christ looks on us. And he sees his righteousness in us. He sees his life in us. He sees us as offspring. He sees us as his family. Those who once wandered like sheep have been made sons and daughters through faith in Christ. Listen, a dead Christ would not be able to look on those whom he redeemed by his blood. But a living Christ sees. A living Christ sees. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, that's the cross, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. That's the resurrection. He sees because the Father prolonged his days. Wicked men put him to death. But the Father, because he is pleased by his obedience, makes him live. And this too was part of God's plan from the beginning. To quote Peter again from Acts chapter 2, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
In the very next breath, Peter says this, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then Peter quotes Psalm 16. He says, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You see, the Father sees and accepts and rewards the willing obedience of the Son. Because of the perfect faithfulness of the Son to obey, the Father is perfectly faithful to keep His promise, to raise Him to life, to prolong His days so that He can see the work that He has accomplished on the cross. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And therefore, because of that obedience, God has highly exalted him. The resurrection, friends, is for Jesus. It confirms that he is worthy of honor for his obedience to the Father. In Jesus' life, at his baptism, the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And as the stone rolled away from the tomb on the first day of the week, that was the father declaring, this is my son who has perfectly obeyed my will. And in him, I am pleased. The resurrection confirms Jesus is worthy of honor for his obedience to the father. That is why verse 10 says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, because of that obedience, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord, God's plan, will prosper in his hand. The plan moves forward. Secondly, the resurrected Christ is not only worthy of honor for his obedience to the Father, he is also worthy of joy in his saints. He is worthy of joy in his saints. Look in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. I want to focus on that first phrase. He shall see and be satisfied. The anguish of the cross, the anguish of his soul, gives way to joy. It gives way to satisfaction. It results in divine pleasure that Jesus Christ himself delights in seeing what he has accomplished. Isaiah says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Why? Why is the son satisfied by what he sees? First of all, as we've already emphasized so much, because he delights to do the will of the father. His obedience to the father's plan was not out of duty. How many of you kids have obeyed your parents because you have to and you have no other choice, right? Sometimes that obedience is an obedience out of duty. And you do it even if you don't want to. But here's the thing. Jesus wanted to obey his father. He delighted to obey his father. There's a second reason why Jesus sees and is satisfied. Not only because he is pleased to know that he has done the will of the father. He's also satisfied because he loves those for whom he died. He desires to see us cleansed. 
He desires to see us redeemed. He desires to save us. In John chapter 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Sheep like you and me that wander. Sheep like us who go astray. Yet Jesus lays down his life for us because he is pleased to save sinners. He loves his own. And this salvation is brought about through his work on the cross. You see, Jesus loves us not just as a shepherd loves the sheep. The New Testament tells us he loves us even more than that. He loves us as a husband, a perfect husband, loves his wife. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul describes the church as the bride of Christ and says that Jesus loved her and gave himself for her that he might purify her and redeem her as a priceless bride without blemish who's pure, no spots. That's the way that Jesus loves the church. And it is in this relationship that Christ desires to have with us as he loves us, as he draws near to us, as he redeems us. The result of this love is that we, through faith in Christ, are actually made to be righteous. Look in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. There's this really striking wordplay in the Hebrew language in which this was written. That the righteous one makes righteous. These words are right next to each other in the text. That Jesus, who is perfectly righteous, delights and rejoices and finds joy in making us, who are sinful, making us to be righteous. You see, this is the problem that Jesus came to address. We're the ones who live under the curse of sin. We're the ones who are marked by grief and sorrow. Jesus comes to carry that. We're the ones guilty of transgression and iniquity, but he bears the punishment for us. We are the stray sheep, but our iniquity is laid on him. He was cut off and stricken because we broke God's law. He is the one who makes an offering for our guilt. So verse 11 says, he is the one who bears our iniquities and makes us righteous. He does all of this through his work on the cross, through his suffering. And this is important, that Jesus' work on the cross did not just make potential atonement for us. It did not just make forgiveness possible. He was not just making salvation available. No, the suffering of Jesus was effective. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. At the cross, actual payment was made. When Jesus suffered and died, he did not cry out, it is possible. He did not cry out, it is now available. What did Jesus say? You know it. He said, it is finished. It's done. The debt has been paid. Jesus makes many to be accounted Righteous. And now, having been raised from the dead, Jesus looks on those whom he has saved, those whom he has made righteous, and this brings him joy. It brings him joy. He sees and he is satisfied. Jesus is not a begrudging Savior, he's not a reluctant Savior, he's not just an obligated Savior. 
Heaven rejoices when one sinner repents because heaven is tuned to the heart of Christ. Consider if Jesus remains in the tomb, if Jesus stays in the grave, if there is no resurrection, if death has the final word, then that means that anguish would be the final note in the song of the suffering servant. It means there is no satisfaction. It means there is no joy for the servant who obeyed his father. But the father raised Jesus up, not only because he's worthy of honor for his obedience, but because Jesus deserves to rejoice in and delight in his saints. In Titus chapter 2.14, it says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus died to purify for himself a people. We are a people for his own possession. We belong to Christ. In John's gospel, Jesus prays for those whom the Father has given to him. And he loves those whom the Father gives to him. And he says he will lose none whom the Father gives to him. Are you seeing the pattern here? That we are the reward for Christ's suffering. We are his reward. I think too often when when we think about heaven, when we think about what happens on the other side of death for Christians, we think heaven is for us. And in many ways, it is. We are free from sin, free from sorrow, free from the curse of death. But as we reflect on the teaching of Scripture and we zoom out and see the big story, we come to understand that really heaven is for Christ. Heaven is for Jesus. That's why Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus saw past the cross, past his suffering, past his death. He saw the joy on the other side, and he wanted it. He said, that is worth it. I will lay down my life for the joy that is on the other side of my humiliation and my suffering. There is joy for us in heaven, yes, but there's also joy for the resurrected Christ. We will one day sing with the heavenly host the words of Revelation 5. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The people that Christ purchased for himself, the people he saved and made righteous, we will live for all eternity to love and worship Christ. And how do you think that will make him feel? How do you think that will stir the heart of Christ? It is joy. It is glory. It is delight. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus is worthy of this joy. Jesus deserves it. He earned it. And so God raised him up that he might enjoy and receive the reward for his suffering, that he might receive the approval of his Father and the worship and the glory and the honor from those whom he purchased with his blood. The resurrected Christ is worthy of honor for his obedience to the Father. Secondly, he's worthy of joy in his saints. And then third, The resurrected Christ is worthy of an inheritance with his saints. He's worthy of an inheritance with his saints. Look in verse 12. Therefore, 
because of his obedience, because of his suffering, because he made many righteous, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This little word, therefore, if you mark in your Bible, is worth circling. It's worth underlining. It's worth highlighting. This is a glorious therefore that says because of everything that Jesus did, because of his faithfulness and his sacrifice, because of his effective work of atonement, he gets the spoils. He gets the spoils. This is military language. The word spoil here is like spoils of war. You've heard the phrase, the spoils go to the victor. Jesus is the victor. He's described here as the conquering general who gets the chief portion of the plunder. Jesus has invaded the kingdom of darkness. Jesus has led a host of captives free. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has crushed the head of the serpent. And now Jesus is destined to rule and to reign forever. Jesus is not just the suffering servant. He's also the conquering king. To quote a messianic psalm, Psalm 110, David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The promise for the Messiah is that he will reign, that the kingdom will be his. And a dead Jesus cannot reign. A dead Christ receives no spoils. A dead Messiah cannot sit on the throne. But Jesus is alive. He's been raised on the third day. He ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father. And there is a day coming in which Jesus will return and the kingdom will be his. Daniel 7 speaks of this day. He sees in the night visions in the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So that all peoples... And all languages, all nations should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's why Isaiah says, Therefore, speaking from God's perspective, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This sure doesn't sound like a dead Jesus. No. And the amazing thing is that all who believe in Christ, we have a share in this kingdom. Second Corinthians says that we march in his triumphal procession. The best parade that, that there's ever been. Because Jesus is at the head as the victor. He's the one carrying the trophy. And we march with him. Hebrews 12 tells us that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that we are destined to receive an inheritance with Christ. The spoil is for us as well. Verse 12 says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. There's a sharing here. Those who share in the spoils, according to this text, are the many. The many, if you look in the verse right before that, It's the same many who have been accounted righteous because Jesus paid for their sin. 
these righteous ones are called the strong in verse 12. Not strong because we are strong in and of ourselves. We are strong because Christ's life is in us, because his spirit empowers us, because he has made us righteous and we belong to him. We're like that kid at the far end of the bench who never scored a point, but we get a piece of the net because Jesus is on our team and he won. So God says, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Though we were once counted transgressors, though we were weak, he has made us strong. He has made us righteous. And so now the inheritance, the spoils, the reward is given to Christ and is then shared with all of those whom Christ represents, those whom have been brought to him, those who know him, those who have been made righteous. And Jesus is worthy of this inheritance. Jesus deserves the spoils. He gets the trophy. The resurrected Christ is worthy of honor for his obedience to the Father. He is worthy of joy in his saints, and he is worthy of the inheritance with his saints. The resurrection, friends, is for Jesus. It confirms that the suffering servant is worthy of his reward. Let me ask you, how do you see Jesus today? What comes to mind when you hear his name? What is your view of him? What do you think he's like? Listen, Jesus doesn't need your pity. There's a temptation for us as we think about the cross and we think about the shedding of his blood. We think about him being betrayed by Judas and abandoned by the rest of the disciples, denied by Peter, falsely accused and condemned by the Sanhedrin. We think about him being scourged by the Romans, being given over by Pilate. We think about him struggling for breath as he loses his blood and his strength on the cross. And we sort of come up with this pitiful, sympathetic view of Jesus where we feel sorry for him. But listen, Jesus doesn't need your pity. There's a sentimental Christianity that simply feels sorry for Jesus on the cross, but Jesus doesn't want your tears of sympathy. The cross was the path to the crown. This is how Jesus won. He did not avoid suffering, but embraced it. There is a glory in his death because it effectively made atonement and it was followed by resurrection. That's why in, in our churches, when we have crosses, there's no body on the cross anymore. It's empty. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty because the resurrection happened. So listen, Jesus doesn't want your pity. He demands your worship. He deserves your allegiance. He wants you to stand in awe this morning of his triumph. And then he invites you through faith to come and share in that triumph. He says, join me. I'm getting ready for my parade. And you can be part of the procession. If I atone for your sins, if I make you righteous, if you are acquitted because of my work, then you will share in the spoils with me. We should look to the cross and feel the severity of sin, yes. We should marvel at his love and his grace and his mercy, yes. But that should cause us not just to feel sorry for Jesus, but to be in awe of him. The Roman centurion who stood there as he watched Jesus breathe his last breath, 
as Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit. The soldier said, surely this man was the son of God. He was in awe. And that should be our response this morning as well. Listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, if you live for yourself, if you're still a slave to your sins, then I invite you today to look to Jesus and to look to him first and foremost as your substitute. Place your faith in him because it is only in knowing Christ that you can be made righteous. You can't do enough good things to make up for your sins. You are hopelessly guilty, hopelessly lost, unless you give your soul to Jesus. It's through trusting in him that your iniquities are laid on his shoulders. It's in trusting him that you can find the healing that you need today, healing from the malady of sin that infects your spirit. The healing you need is found in his wounds. The righteousness you need is found Outside of yourself, it's found in Christ. Look to him as your substitute. Lay hold of him by faith. Trust him to save you. Believers, will you offer him today your worship? Because Jesus deserves our praise. He deserves our adoration. He is worthy of the reward for his suffering. So no matter what you may be facing today, do not forget that because Jesus died on the cross and rose again, we who believe are destined to share in the spoils. The kingdom belongs to Christ, and it therefore belongs to us as well. This is the gracious and glorious plan of God, accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ. May he receive today, as we remember his resurrection, the glory that is due his name. May he look on us, his redeemed worshipers, and be satisfied as we praise the one who not only died for us, but also rose again because he deserves honor for his obedience to the Father. He is worthy of joy in his saints and he deserves the spoils of the kingdom. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe this morning as we consider that there is no one who could have did what you have done. There is no one who is righteous, who is worthy to offer a perfect sacrifice for sinners. And there is no one, there is no one who could have rose from the dead like you did. You are the son of God, slain for us as a perfect lamb. But you were also the king of kings who triumphed over the grave. Your father approved because you accomplished that amazing plan that was determined in eternity past. Lord Jesus, you deserve all of our worship, all of our adoration. You deserve honor and glory and power and blessing. Lord, may we look to you today and give you the glory you deserve. And I pray that you would fill our hearts, not just with sympathy for the suffering servant, but with awe, with gratitude, with joy, because we have been made righteous through that suffering, and now we share in the spoils. We praise you, Lord Jesus. You are high and lifted up. You are over all. So be preeminent in our worship and in our hearts and in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.